0: Hi, Can You Do That, listeners? This is Allison Michaels. Today is our final episode in this special series of presidential episodes on the three presidents who faced impeachment before President Trump. Today's episode is about President Bill Clinton. His impeachment in 1998 was the most recent one in American history. To hear more of Lillian Cunningham's episodes on each of the American presidents, check out Presidential on your favorite podcast platform or at WashingtonPost.com presidential. Here now is the story of Bill Clinton.
1: Clinton is, i always said he's an exaggeration of all of us. He's sort of chaos theory. Um, there's a lot of good and bad in him. And actually, when I was writing my biography of Clinton, it was the hardest three months of my writing career were the final three months of writing that book because I kept saying, well, you've studied his whole life. You're a biographer. What is it? Do you like him or not? Is he good or bad? And the obvious became obvious <laughs> which was that he's both, that they're inseparable, that the same forces that drove Clinton for the better also drove him for the worse. And you couldn't, you couldn't separate the two, and his presidency is sort of like that. It's a grab bag of good and bad.
2: As we get closer and closer to present day, we don't have the great arc of history to tell us whether a president is great or horrible, whether certain decisions will be memorable or forgotten. But as we've seen through the podcast, even though hindsight can lend clarity, it can also remove the true complexity. So what we're going to explore in this episode about Bill Clinton is this idea that the very same character traits can be at the root of a person's best and worst behaviors, and that the very same policies can be at the root of a president's very best and worst legacies. I'm Lillian Cunningham with the Washington Post, and this is the 41st episode of Presidential.
0: shall resign the presidency effective at noon
2: tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live
1: in infamy.
2: All right, well, with me is David Marinus, He won the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of Bill Clinton's presidency, and he's also the author of First in His Class, a biography of Bill Clinton. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thank
1: you, Lily. Great to be here. <laughs>
2: you, were, you were all the way back on our Ulysses S. Grant episode. and <laughs> Now you've returned.
1: Centuries later. <laughs>
2: um, paint a portrait for me of Bill Clinton's childhood. And in particular, what in his early story you think should make us, you know, surprised on the one hand and not surprised on the other hand that he ended up becoming president?
1: Well, he certainly came out of nowhere. Uh, Southwest Arkansas, born in Hope, Arkansas, a small town near the border with Texas um, in August of 1946, uh, the first wave of baby boomers. Uh, He was born without a father. His uh, father had been killed in a car accident a few months before little Billy was born. He was born with a different name. He was William Jefferson Blythe. That was his father. Uh, He was born with essentially two women fighting over him, uh, his mother, Virginia Cassidy, and her mother, Edith, both of whom were nurses and had very different personalities. But you can see from the beginning sort of both of those personalities in the later Bill Clinton. Uh, Edith Cassidy uh, was very regimented. She would wake him up in the middle of the night to feed him. Um, Virginia, his mother, was much looser and freer, a freewheeling personality. And both of those are parts of Bill Clinton. The one thing they had in common was um, that they doted over him and they thought he was special and he was going to be something someday. When he was five years old, his mother remarried. Uh, that's where he got the name Clinton. Roger Clinton was an alcoholic. Um, he was part of the, a fairly established family in Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, although it was the brothers who would who were in politics or in business, and Roger was sort of the ne'er-do-well of the family, um, but very appealing, attractive, charismatic, and Bill Clinton's mother fell in love with, with him. And... I would say that another aspect of Clinton's character that you can see from that childhood is sort of as the um, child of an alcoholic, always trying to um, sort of bridge the gaps in the family, mend the fences, and go out and achieve in the outside world to bring some honor back to the family. Um, He was also very good at compartmentalizing from a very early age. Um, Many of his friends, his close friends, Um, would be at the house all the time and had no idea of the internal dysfunction within the family. Clinton was able to keep that from them for a variety of reasons, one being that he did not really have a father, um, another being that his mother um, was a working mother and was gone much of the time, including for a couple of years she went off to nursing school and left him with a grandmother. Bill Clinton was always in need of affirmation and love and um, people, He had an incredible need for people from an early age. Some of his his high school friends would would say that uh, he'd invite them over to the house just so they could watch him do a crossword puzzle. (laughs) Um, You know, it it was just that he had to have somebody around. So I would say that the combination of growing up with an alcoholic father, having this this neediness um, to be with people, both really shaped the politician that would come.
2: So everyone talks about his charisma even political opponents will say that there's something sort of uniquely powerful and compelling about talking with him and being in a room with him um, what exactly do you think is behind this can you f- put your finger on it well and describe uh, the- charisma
1: is um, is a mystery and Bill Clinton is one of those people who has it some of it is physical he had big soft warm hands uh, he was constantly touching people. Part of it was the way he he was able to uh, make you feel that you were the only person in the room and that when he was talking to you, it was the most important thing in the world, whether he really felt that way or not. Often he did not, but he made you feel that way. Um, he also had an ability to both be intellectual You know, he'd trained at the best schools in the country, Georgetown and and Yale and and Oxford, and yet have a down-home sensibility. So he was able to mix those two in a way that few politicians are, so he could seem authentic in either way. I've often said of Bill Clinton, um, and I mean this mostly as a compliment, that he's an authentic phony. In other words, wherever he is at that moment, it's the real Bill Clinton, and he can make you feel that that's really him. And it is for that moment, but it might be a different Bill Clinton in five minutes later. And I think that uh, is a part of his uh, personality that plays into that charisma. It's the ability to make you feel that what's going on at that moment is incredibly important, and he's, he's there with you.
2: To what extent do you think that's just an innate quality of his versus something that he seemed to get better and better at over time?
1: I would say that's mostly innate. That's not to say that he didn't work at many other aspects of of his political uh, personality and character. Um, he certainly grew better at uh, public speaking. He worked incredibly hard at networking and, and um, developing uh, literally shoeboxes full of contacts from around the country at a pretty early age. But the actual, uh, what you would call charisma or whatever it was, that capacity to to connect with people, I think was innate, but also political, in the sense that he was actually much better at doing that with strangers than with people who knew him too well, mm-hmm. uh, which is not uncommon among leaders. They're often much better at connecting with strangers than with their, with their nuclear family or with close aides and, and people who work for them.
2: What are some of the... Character traits of his that you think might be a bit less well known. I mean, he,
1: he definitely uh, has a, uh, an angry streak in him, the purple rage that would come and then go very quickly. Um, he he's not he's got a nice uh, sense of humor, but he's not he's not very good at telling jokes. You know, Al Gore, for instance, who's considered wooden and stiff, is actually much better at jokes than Bill Clinton was. Clinton is just uh, sort of good at, at repartee. He's got a near um, photographic memory. If he met someone uh, as a young person, if he saw them 30 years later, he would recognize them. Uh, he probably knows something about maybe 20 or 30,000 people enough so that when he would meet you, he would remember not just your name, but a story about you and a way to connect with you personally, that sort of feeds into that Mm, charisma thing. So, you know, he's got a near photographic memory about everything, I would say, except his own life. (laughs) (laughs) And there, sometimes it gets fuzzy.
2: Okay, so just to give the quick chronology of his political rise... He attended Oxford University, then Georgetown, then Yale Law School, which is where he met his future wife, Hillary Rodham. And just a little anecdote about their first date. Uh, They both wanted to go to a museum on campus that ended up being closed, but Clinton got them into it by sweet talking the guard. All right, so they get through school. Eventually, Clinton returns to Arkansas and he runs for a seat in Congress in 1974, which he loses. A year later, he and Hillary got married, and then a year after that, he was elected the Attorney General of Arkansas. He does that for two years, and then he is elected governor of the state. He's 32 years old, he serves one term, and then he loses re-election. But two years later, he's right back at it, and he's elected governor again, he ends up eventually serving five terms before deciding to run for president of the United States. So, David, let's back up now and uh, take a closer look at some of these moments. Um, what do you think were some uh, a couple of the most important political lessons that he learned earlier in his career before the presidency, you know, when he was governor, for example?
1: Well, he learned some even before that. His first political campaign, he worked for the father of one of his girlfriends. Uh, Judge Holt was running for Congress in Arkansas, and um, Clinton started to learn from that campaign that you have to respond when somebody criticizes you, um, because Judge Holt would not. Um, From his governorship, I'd say, was the most fundamental lesson of his life. Um, and it was losing. He lost after one term. He was elected in 1978 and lost in 1980. Uh, He was a young man. Uh, There was a saying of Rhodes Scholars that they're a brilliant young man with great futures behind them, and that's (laughs) sort of the way Bill Clinton was. At age 34, you know, he was defeated. He was the youngest ex-governor in American history, and he learned from that many lessons that he carried with him from then on and the key ones um, were to constantly stay in touch with your constituency and figure out ways to get around the press and other people to do that, sort of to mount a permanent campaign, which is what he did from then on, so that whatever he was trying to sell, whatever policies he was pushing, um, he would figure out ways to, to, to make sure that that was foremost in the public's mind. Um, He also learned, even earlier than that, let's go back even to 1972, when he was at Yale Law School and he went down to Texas and uh, was the um, co-chairman of George McGovern's campaign in Texas, and they got trounced. And I think that from that defeat, um, through his early years as governor, uh, through his, also he lost running for Congress in 1974, through all of that, what he was trying to figure out is how to be basically a progressive, a practical liberal in a society that was becoming more and more conservative. Mm -hmm. And I think that he worked on that for the rest of his career, really, and really that's what helped him get elected in 1992, that he'd sort of figured out what would then be called the third way.
2: Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about his presidential campaign then. Um, part of what he seemed to be able to do so well was to appeal to and also create something of a coalition of both the downtrodden and the very well-educated. I'd love to hear what you think are some of the most significant ways in which he changed Democratic Party politics and also, you know, presidential campaigning.
1: Well, he certainly um, changed Democratic Party politics or he was part of a a transformation in that period, which was to emphasize the fact that the most important thing is to get elected, that power is the key to everything and that you can have all of the right ideals and ideas. But if you're not in power and you're not getting elected, um, you're not really changing society. So for all... Politicians, to one degree or another, the central tension is between ambition and an idealism. And with Clinton, it's just sort of exaggerated in both senses. He went into politics with certain idealistic perspectives, particularly on issues of race, but also on economic issues and on issues of war and peace. And over the course of trying to figure out how to get elected, his ambition might sort of change or transform some of his ideals. Um, And the question always with Clinton is, what does he really believe? Um, Because he was so adept at at sort of the process of, of figuring out how to appeal to people and get elected, to the point where sometimes people felt that he was saying one thing to one group and an utterly other thing to another group. So I would say that when he was elected in 92, it was part of a wave of a uh, more pragmatic, neo-liberal thought coming to the fore. And uh, his presidency was really played out as, in that vein as sort of pragmatic, mostly progressive and liberal, but at times doing what it took to survive. Uh, so whether that meant uh, welfare reform or uh, some of the other programs where he acceded to the Republican majority in Congress or at least shaped policy with them. I think that, that that was basically how you would define his presidency. One person described it as sort of a Eisenhower Republican presidency. Uh, that was a critique that it was too conservative. But the, the interesting contrast there is that his opponents were always trying to portray him as some raging, baby boomer, uh, long-haired radical, and he was anything but.
2: So this is Bill Clinton famously playing his saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show in June of 1992, the election year. And in this moment, there's sort of a tipping point in terms of, you know, how much the lines between entertainment and politics really start to blur. We talked about this on our last episode. It's these moments in the campaign where Clinton comes across as... Empathetic and relatable and cool and charismatic in a way that the current president, George H.W. Bush, who's running for re election, just can't or, you know, doesn't want to. So, David, Clinton comes into the White House. It's January of 1993. Um, As president, how did Clinton work his will. You know, he was. How would he get people to do what he wanted? He
1: was uh, considered sort of Johnsonian, in a sense. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was considered the master of the physical approach to getting your will. Constantly talking, constantly um, manipulating people, constantly putting their arm around them, and and uh, sweet talking them or threatening them, or cajoling them, doing whatever it took. Um, Clinton is somewhat in that vein. Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. He was constantly on the phone. You know, all of his aides or senators and congressmen say if the phone rang at 2 in the morning, I knew it was Clinton (laughs) because he didn't sleep or he slept like four hours a night. Um, And he had to keep talking to people. To the extent that he was able to get his will, I think it was through that sort of sort of physical Johnsonian method plus a capacity to synthesize information better than almost anyone else in a room. He really understood policy. He was both a, a, a physical politician and a policy wonk at the same time. And so in crucial situations, for instance, during the 1995-96 period when he was having to do the most dealings with with uh, the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, over their attempts to cut the budget and transform the entire uh, budget of the United States. President Clinton was able at once to both charm Gingrich whenever they were in a room together, to the extent that Gingrich would come out of the room and say to his aide, you've got to help me. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm helpless in there. Uh, but also understood the policy enough to figure ways around it. So that's to the extent that he was able to work as well, that was it.
2: So what was he successfully able to achieve that he had initially set out to achieve? And um, what wasn't he able to do? How should we start to evaluate his legacy?
1: Presidential campaigns uh, are almost rendered irrelevant the day after someone takes office in the sense that so many things come at you that were unexpected. So that the issues of a campaign um, are not the most important things a year or two later, um, I think that Bill Clinton himself has always sort of uh, rude the fact that um, there was no major crisis during his presidency. He not, you know, not that he wanted to have a war. He had several minor, whatever you want to call them, skirmishes or bombing campaigns, but no wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was he felt he was never really tested in a terrific crisis, and therefore he couldn't establish himself as a great president because he didn't face that crisis. Um, and I've always looked at his presidency not as two four-year terms, but as four two-year terms. Mm-hmm. In the first two years he had a Democratic majority, he was able to pass a budget reconciliation bill that sort of helped the economy start booming again. By 95 and 96, he was dealing with the Gingrich Revolution, the Republicans taking over Congress. And there it was more of a jujitsu effort of trying to make them overplay their hand so that he could get reelected. And then after he's reelected, I would say that that's when he sort of became the Eisenhower Republican and that's when he passed the for reform and so on. And then the last the last segment was really just trying to survive the impeachment and the Republicans' efforts to, to completely uh, diminish his presidency. Um, most historians consider President Clinton to be a largely effective but deeply flawed president. He was largely effective both in foreign policy and in the economics of that period, and he was deeply flawed as a human being, and that that to some degree tainted his presidency. It's been interesting this year to see um, the reverberations of some of, of the policies that he was most proud of when he was president that have come back to to sort of haunt his, his wife, Hillary Clinton, as she runs for president, particularly the 1993 crime bill and its effects on the incarceration of African-American men. You know, he was once called the first black president by Toni Morrison, uh, but I think that some of his... Some of his policies have stood up less well over time than perhaps he thought they would.
2: With me now is another Washington Post colleague, Jim Tankersley. He covers economic policy for the Post. Uh, David Marinus was on our Ulysses S. Grant episode. You, Jim, were on the James Buchanan episode. Um, So... History is repeating itself. Welcome back.
3: History is repeating itself. It's it's nice to be back. Thanks for having me.
2: <laughs> so we're going to talk about the way that history is already starting to reassess, reconsider Bill Clinton's policy legacy.
3: Yeah. And it's a really interesting fact that it hasn't taken very long for some of these policies that were signature achievements for Bill Clinton to come under very new scrutiny, particularly from the left uh, as we move forward. But I think it's important to start by talking about what it is that Americans really think about and they think about his legacy. And the big thing is they think about a roaring economy. The economy grew more than 3% per year in the 90s when he was president. and, And much more importantly, for a lot of Americans, it was the last time they can remember where for a sustained amount of time, they felt like the economy was delivering well for them. So Clinton takes office in 1993. Real median household income is about $50,000 a year in today's dollars. At the peak of the Clinton boom in 2000, it's up to almost $58,000 a year. That's more than a 15% increase. That's really good. That's, that's as good as it was in the 80s under Reagan. These are boom times. And notably, we are just now getting kind of close to getting back to the level we were at at the peak of the Clinton boom. We're still not there yet. So for a lot of Americans, Bill Clinton's time in office represents this nostalgia of an economy that's growing and working for everybody.
2: And uh, what did he do? What was the role that he played in that? Did he kind of just luck into an economy that had turned the corner? Or
3: It's debatable how much impact presidents actually have on the economy. But there are some policies for which Bill Clinton gets a lot of credit during his time in office. One of the big ones is that he runs a very disciplined fiscal policy. It's not entirely of his doing, but he and a Republican Congress balance the budget. It's the last balanced budget we've seen. Then he also sort of brings America into the global economy in a new way. He signs NAFTA. He opens up trade with China. He deregulates the financial industry in some ways that allow Wall Street to grow and flourish. These produce growth and they help produce some of the income gains of the 90s. They also set the stage for some of these critiques that are now starting to spring up about Clinton's legacy.
2: So why don't we start with NAFTA? This election year, we've heard a lot about it. Why is it sort of being reevaluated right now?
3: NAFTA, by the way, we
2: This is the North American Free Trade Agreement.
3: Uh, Bill Clinton and uh, the Congress worked together to put it uh, into place. It is an agreement with the United States, with Mexico, with Canada, and what it did was it brought down barriers to trade, a freer movement of, of goods and services across borders.
2: So, why was it considered a win at the time?
3: It was considered a win at a time because this was a time when opening up the United States to more global trade was seen as a way to to harness the power of the global economy. Standard trade theory says that if if you're trading more with people, then every every country can specialize in what they're best at, and everyone's better off. Um, There's lots of argument about to what extent that has been true in the global economy over the last quarter century, but it is true that it helps economies grow faster. So NAFTA has, has long been uh, a thing that the business community loved, that economists generally think was mm, pretty good, but which workers, particularly manufacturing workers, particularly in very concentrated parts of the country, feel like cost them jobs. Some factories were able to move from higher cost America to lower cost Mexico in particular, and then ship their products back, uh, more easily. Mm-hmm. The other really important trade piece that Clinton does is not a trade agreement at all. But he works to allow China to enter the World Trade Organization near the end of his term. The United States extends what's called permanent normal trade relations with China. As a consequence, we could import more things from them. So stuff we used to make in the United States suddenly is being made in China, and it's being sent back to the United States for people to buy. The upside of that for Americans is Products cost a lot less when they're being made in China and shipped back here. The downside was the jobs uh, making those products went away. Millions of American jobs by the count of some economists. And that has been a central fight uh, in this presidential campaign. It's been a central fight in the states most affected by that, Rust Belt states in particular, Ohio, Pennsylvania for years, basically ever since the policy was enacted. And so it was seen as a crowning achievement for Clinton working with Republicans. But it since then has become a huge flashpoint to his legacy.
2: All right. So another one that you mentioned was deregulation.
3: Yeah, so this what is there. this is probably the most controversial among liberals, even more than mm-hmm. trade, because we had a financial crisis. Um, Clinton had a group of advisors known as the Rubinites, led by uh, a guy named Robert Rubin, who was the Treasury Secretary. Um, and their theory was that by um, allowing Wall Street to operate a little more freely, to do new things, to be more innovative in the way that it sold financial products, that would be good for the economy. And it did create a lot of growth in the financial sector. It also is a contributing factor, not the largest probably, but one of the contributing factors to the financial meltdown that we had at the end of President George W. Bush's term, and that caused the Great Recession. And so there has been a general sense that Wall Street uh, was given this pass under Clinton to do all these things, which ended up wrecking the economy to huge consequences for real people.
2: So what did he do that was positive?. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <Lily. Sorry. laughs> so there's a lot. Um, the best thing you can say, I think, in retrospect about Clinton's economic agenda was that he ran the economy at what we call full employment for a long time. Unemployment got really low. Mm-hmm. And it stayed low and inflation stayed low. And by running a hot economy like that, what we're learning about the U.S. economy is that it just produces better for a broader group of people when it's running at that very tight capacity for a really long time. It's The easy way to think about it is if there's hardly anybody looking for work who doesn't already have a job. And... Companies still are growing and adding and needing to hire more workers. They have a lot more incentive to offer raises to the workers who are in one job to try to get them to come work in another. And so, this ended up being a really positive thing for the poor, for the middle class, for the rich. There were big income gains in the late 90s, because that's the last time we've seen anything like that. Hmm. So, Clinton, by presiding over this economy and by having this these balanced budget fiscal policies that appear to have really helped uh, put a lot of confidence in financial markets and allow a lot of investment. Um, I think the best thing we can say is that that really did deliver for huge groups of people. And then what comes after it, the recession, takes away from from a lot of people to a small degree in the 2001 recession to a much larger degree in the 2008 recession. And this is the controversial part of his legacy. The, the policies that he put in place that maybe contributed to that roaring 90s economy, how much do they end up sowing the seeds of the 2000s discontent among manufacturing workers? among people who were uh, left uh, underwater by the housing crisis, Uh, all of this has become controversial.
2: So, okay, so you're saying that things like deregulation and NAFTA did in the short term have a positive effect.
3: And I would also say that a lot of economists, most economists would find that NAFTA has had a positive effect in the long term, too, the problem with the trade policies in particular under Clinton was that there were winners and losers. Companies, shareholders, consumers of, pro- of imported products all did win. But the people who held those good paying jobs in textile mills in Tennessee, in North Carolina, in steel plants in Pennsylvania, they feel as if they've been left behind by trade. And they weren't adequately trained for the new service jobs in the new economy that that came with it. Clinton used to talk you know, about building a bridge to the 21st century. And those workers kind of got left behind on the other island. And they still find themselves there today, a lot of them. So you can say that they've overall had positive benefits to the economy. Trade has overall had a lot of positive benefits to the economy. But for those concentrated groups of people, it has not.
2: So beyond his economic policies, are there other policies of his that, you know, with time, opinion has changed on how effective or successful they were?
3: I mean, almost all of them. Many of his signature achievements have become controversial in the aftermath of his presidency. And that includes several of the ones that he ran on and also ones that he sort of found common ground with Republicans on to enact. So, for example, the crime bill, which was a big which we heard about earlier, but is a big part of his uh, early legislative agenda, has become incredibly controversial for its effects on African-Americans. At the time, we have to remember there there was this big spike in violent crime in particular, and in particular, violent crime against black people in America. So Clinton had this plan to add 100,000 cops to the streets to increase sentencing so there's these three strikes you're out rules that end up putting people in prison for much longer offenders in prison much longer repeat offenders um and so what that ends up doing is doubling the incarcerated population in federal prisons what also ends up happening is that crime which had started to tick down already continues to fall so um the bill, at first, is seen as a success. There's this falling crime rate. Since then, though, the the complaint has been that it contributed to the incarceration of an enormous population of particularly young African-American men. And that has been something that Clinton has had to answer for in his own legacy.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, what about health care? That was something that was considered a big priority Healthcare okay, is going into
3: health is the interesting example of a clinton policy that didn't get done that re, that right. remains in a weird way uh controversial for not having been done hmm. um bill clinton wanted to do universal health care and he puts hillary rodham clinton uh, basically at the head of this effort to come up with a health care plan they they go through a very long and tortured process and in the end it just collapses they are not able to enact a a big health care plan. Now, of course, what ends up happening in the 2008 Democratic presidential primaries, Hillary Clinton tries again to run on, on a health care plan. She loses to Barack Obama, who wins the presidency, and then he enacts a health care plan that, that is basically a, at least a philosophical extension of what Clinton had been trying to do. Mm-hmm. There are a few other policies where Bill Clinton's uh, efforts have not worn well among liberals. The biggest of those is welfare reform. After the the recession under uh, President Bush, uh, there was this big outcry and this idea that too many people were gaming the system, were staying for too long on government handouts and not working. So Bill Clinton um, signs a bill that is passed through a Republican Congress that does a lot of things. But it limits how many years you can receive federal welfare and uh, it puts new work requirements. The upshot of this is that Clinton claims it is a great bipartisan victory. But over time, liberals begin to see it. It's 20 years old now and liberals see it as having worsened very, very deep poverty. They believe that for people who couldn't find work anyway or who were unable to work, it knocked out a key piece of the safety net. Mm -hmm. Conservatives consider this arguably their favorite part of the Clinton legacy. They believe it was a truly meaningful step to reining in government uh, spending on, on welfare programs and they have resisted democratic efforts to change that reform law. So in a strange way, this part of the legacy, along with his trade legacy, has worn better with the business Republicans who fought Clinton on so much in office than it has with his own base that so enthusiastically reelected him
2: um, so when you look across all of these different policies and how they've played out you know are there any larger conclusions you can draw about his approach to policy his approach to leadership
3: yeah Clinton. Bill Clinton embraced this idea that government needed to get smaller. He tried to unify the goals of sort of um, great society, President Johnson thinking, with the um, Reagan esque idea that a little less government was going to be better for the overall economy and for taxpayers and people's lives. Um, in some ways, he really succeeded. Government employment falls. Dramatically under Clinton, there was outsourcing of things to government contractors. He really did pare down the size of government. In other ways, though, he ends up making a, a case among liberals for bigger government. They they look at the measures he put in that he would have called pragmatic at the time, that were bipartisan, that worked with Republicans, and they and that has led Democrats to say those didn't work. So now we need more government. We need. We need full on single payer health care. We need to have totally different types of trade deals. We need to have the government much more engaged in regulating Wall Street. And that backlash is now changing the way I think presidents think about economic policy. Bill Clinton was trying to be this triangulator of Reaganism and and Johnsonism that you don't see right now happening anywhere else in our politics. Mm -hmm. One interesting, I think, end note to the Clinton policy legacy, though, Mm -hmm. is the idea that it doesn't entirely get finished. His successor, chosen successor, Al Gore, loses the 2000 election. If Gore had won and that same recession in 2001 had happened, perhaps Americans would blame Bill Clinton more for that downturn than they do now, whereas now the downturn was under Bush. On the other hand, Gore losing denies Democrats the chance to cement or or perhaps extend some of these victories that Clinton had on policy. And so a lot of it ends up being frozen in place. And I think trade is a, a really good example of that, where maybe under a President Gore, there might have been a lot more effort to compensate the losers of trade. I, I think what's interesting about all of this, though, is that Gore loses that election in in part on policy, in part on personality, and in part because of the non-policy part of the Clinton legacy, his impeachment uh, over a sex scandal. And it is those scandals that end up overshadowing his policy legacy by denying him what what would have been at least a partial third term.
2: All right, well, um, right on cue. (laughs) Here's the part of the episode where We'll start to talk about Clinton's sex scandals and his impeachment trial. As a refresher, in 1994, so about a year and a half into his presidency, Paula Jones sued Bill Clinton for sexual harassment. She said the incident happened back in 1991 when he was governor of Arkansas and she was a state employee. The case wound its way through the courts over several years while Clinton was president. And at one point during the discovery phase, lawyers get information that a White House intern in 1995, Monica Lewinsky, may have also had a sexual relationship with the president. This, of course, turns into an enormous scandal, dominating headlines, dominating cable news for the remainder, essentially, of Bill Clinton's presidency. And uh There are lots of twists and turns to the story and to the legal details of it, but the short version is that Bill Clinton initially denies that he had any relationship with her, and then in August of 1998, he testifies before a grand jury, and then he goes in front of the American public, and he says...
1: Indeed, I did have a relationship with Ms. Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part for which I am solely and completely responsible. But I told the grand jury today, and I say to you now, that at no
3: time did I ask anyone to lie.
2: By the end of that year, 1998, the Congress starts the impeachment process, and the question isn't whether he should be removed as president because of this affair, per se. It really hinges legally on two charges, perjury and obstruction of justice. Um, I'm going to turn back to you here, David, because you were at The Washington Post while all of this was happening. You covered Clinton's presidency. I'd love to hear some of your memories of covering the Lewinsky scandal. And this is a bit of a inside journalism question, I guess. But what was the relationship between... Clinton and the press at that time? What did it feel like to work at a paper in the nation's capital as all of this was unfolding?
1: Well, um, you have to understand what came before, which was that the Clintons have always been defensive and protective and less than transparent with the press. That went back to, actually, to Arkansas, where when I was studying his governorship It seemed like every story in the paper about him would say, Governor Clinton bristled when asked this or that. Then he comes into office already having survived reports about his personal life. And very soon after that came reports and questions about his financial dealings in Arkansas related to Whitewater. So... There was, well before the Lewinsky scandal broke, there was a lot of tension between Clinton and the press and a lot of feelings that that the Clinton White House was not being transparent in its dealings with the press. So that clouded the issue somewhat and led to a less than trustworthy relationship. But the central question for me always was, um, what is the relevance of this to his presidency? And I think that's an important question that is not, easily answered but it has to constantly be asked you know was this Clinton's personal life that was being dealt with here in the Lewinsky scandal did it relate to his presidency in any significant way did it have any bearing on how he behaved as president on his policies as president you know how much of it was Clinton's activities and how much of it was people trying to get him and finding the material there because with Clinton, there's always something going to be there. And, you know, as a journalist and as a biographer, I have to keep constantly asking those questions, but they're not mine to answer, um, in a sense. So it was a a very difficult period. Um, My own understanding of Clinton on a purely political level was that he would survive.
2: He did survive. In order for him to be removed from office, two-thirds of senators would have had to vote that he was guilty, and only about half did. So Clinton remained in office. So David, I wonder whether, now that about two decades have passed, whether you think that that trial and that scandal will remain his legacy, or, you know, where do you think that his presidency will fit in this larger arc of American history
1: when he was going through the impeachment it was assumed that that would be the first paragraph of his obituary I wrote his obituary Um, he's still alive it's Mm -hmm. not the first paragraph so uh, you know I think that what's the first
2: paragraph now?
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's the it's the end of the second paragraph (laughs) Um, so uh, you know I don't think that's the major imprint Um, but I I think that his presidency marked the beginning of of the technological and cultural changes that have just come faster and faster ever since. Email was just starting. Um, the Internet was just beginning. You know, he did understand the, dy- the cultural dynamics of the coming technological changes, and he was part of that. I mean, he was... He became a cultural phenomenon as much as a president. And I think that's become increasingly true of, of sort of the confusion or melding or mixing of celebrity and politics and popular culture in American life now. I think it started with Clinton when he told somebody what type of underwear he wore, when he went on Arsenio Hall and played the saxophone, mm-hmm. so many different steps along the way of his presidency where you could see this is not the way it used to be.
2: How did your study of Clinton change the way that you now study um, and evaluate other presidents?
1: Every president is different. Every human being is different. Some people learn from their mistakes and some don't. Some people uh, change and grow and some don't. But I'm always looking for those patterns and cycles, and I, I saw that very early on with with Bill Clinton so that it's really a, a way of looking at people to see the forces that shaped them, which can predict how they will respond to the forces that they confront. Um, when you study Bill Clinton's life, you see this incredible survival mechanism. And you also see what I consider the central threat of his life, which is a cycle of loss and recovery. You know, the first loss being the not having a father. Um, then losing the governorship, figuring out how to recover. Um, he was so good at that, that, that I understood through the, the controversies of his campaign, and then through the, through the difficulties of his first term, and then through the Lewinsky scandal, in every case I knew Clinton would figure his way out of it. He would survive. Uh, and then he'd get in trouble again, and that's sort of the endless cycle of Bill Clinton.
2: This week's guests, my Washington Post colleagues, David Marinus and Jim Tankersley. Original music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. And next week, we'll be talking about the presidency of George W. Bush. That means we are nearing the end of the presidential podcast. And I just can't tell you how grateful I am that so many of you have traveled this far with me through American presidential history. So uh, stick with me. Just a couple more episodes to go.
0: has been another episode of Can He Do That? I hope you enjoyed this special series featuring episodes from the presidential podcast. If you're still on the hunt for a great New Year's resolution, think about listening to the whole presidential series. It's an excellent way to brush up on your presidential history as we head into an election year. Check it out at WashingtonPost.com slash presidential. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Christmas Carol Alderman with production help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Ridal brooks logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.